Uh, but let me pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who speaks. And we pray there will be those who believe what you say and don't make you out to be a liar. Please help us to be encouraged and uh, to take hold of what it is that you're promising this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, 15 years ago, who can remember what they were doing? Uh, hang on, you've got you to gotta work it out. You've got to be reasonably good at maths to go back 15, that's 2004. 2004, big year for some, for you? No. Uh, for me, it was the year I finished Bible college. Uh, and I got my first job as a minister in a church. I was the assistant minister at St. Matthew's Anglican Church at Windsor. Uh, if you've not been to St. Matthew's at Windsor, it's a very historic kind of church. Uh, it would have been the oldest church building still standing in the country. Uh, had it not been for the fact that they uh, they built it once, discovered that the convict brick that they were using was of such poor quality that the thing wouldn't stand up if people walked in. So they knocked it down uh, and rebuilt the same thing, uh, and it just took some years longer, during which time several other churches went up, the oldest being Ebenezer Uniting Church. Uh, there you go. If you've ever been to Ebenezer, you might not even know where that is. It's out in the middle of nowhere, just on the edge of Sydney. Uh, it's a tiny little stone building, but St. Matthew's is this massive thing. It's, uh, seats 400 or so people. Uh, it's got this huge clock and bell tower. It's got a gravity driven clock. If you, if you all know what a gravity driven clock is, it's got this huge weight that kind of runs down the tower. They have to wind it up each day. Uh, and it drives the clock because it's so far to fall. Uh, and it's just this massive, magnificent thing that's got this driveway going up to it with this huge monument and one of those circular kind of a roundabout at the end of the driveway. Either you could park your fancy chariots in, uh, carriages or your limo or whatever. Um, and because it's such a magnificent kind of historical building, you can imagine what it's really popular for. What do you reckon? Weddings, Weddings and something else. Funerals. There you go. Um, uh, what do you reckon they have more of? Weddings or funerals? Funerals. There you go. Uh, by far. There are about 26 weddings a year, uh, when I was there at least, um, uh, at St Matthews, and about 60 to 70 funerals a year. That's more than one a week. Uh, and I'm pretty sure it wasn't just me boring everyone to death. But anyway... Uh, most of the time I'd do a funeral I'd never met the person who was being buried but on occasion I had the incredible privilege of of meeting the person before they died for some reason Uh, of course there were church members I met them uh, but lots of other people I I, called down to the hospital or or something like that Uh, one guy was a guy named Brian Uh, Brian wandered into church one day, carrying an oxygen tank under his arm, breathing tubes up his nose, uh, and he stuck around after the service, shook my hand at the door and said he'd been diagnosed with cancer, and lung cancer, and he'd been given six months to live and there was nothing that could be done. And the doctor had said, you've got six months to live, so sort out your affairs and make peace with God. And he realised, as soon as the doctor said that, he was really troubled because his affairs were all sorted out, but he had this uh, aching suspicion that he wasn't at peace with God, that he wasn't worthy of heaven, and that he had no idea where he'd end up. Now, he wasn't after a miracle cure, and he 
Uh, he wasn't trying to prolong his life. He just wanted to know if it was possible to be at peace with God and to have eternal life. And though I didn't think of it at the time, it strikes me that today's passage in 1 John 5 would have been a pretty good place to start. Uh, verse 11 in 1 John 5, This is the testimony of God. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. When you can't, you almost can't get a clearer declaration from the Scriptures about eternal life, that it's real, it's sure, you can be um, sure you can have it, and, and it's all tied up with Jesus. Indeed, if you have Jesus, you have life. Um, and even better, it says that God has sworn it as he's given his testimony. It's as if God himself was in court swearing that this is true. Now, for those of us here who are followers of Christ, we hear that and, and our hearts are cheered, aren't they? They're glad. Uh, we know that God's always good for his word. And, and it's great knowing there's something more than this life, which is just not full of tedium and pain and decay and sadness and death. You know, knowing that promise is wonderful. And, and thank God that he has sworn it's true. He's guaranteed it. But most people hear that kind of thing and they're a bit cynical, aren't they? Maybe that's you. Maybe you're cynical. Maybe it's been you in the past. You were cynical. Or maybe you just know people who are very cynical about it. Yeah, 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 good one. Yeah, likely. Some are cynical because they see it as just another promise of pie in the sky when you die. Just another thing that Christianity says that has no relevance at all for living in the here and now. You know, but... You know, maybe if you're coming to the end of your life, maybe then you'd want to know. But now, you know, I've got a life to live. The only time most Australians think about eternal life is when someone they love is dying or, or, or if they're at their funeral or, or when they themselves get seriously sick or they hear that dreadful word first mentioned in the doctor's surgery, cancer. Uh, just like Brian. But there's another reason that people are cynical. Because what does John mean that God has testified to it? How do we know this is what God really says and it's not just something that John and his buddies in the early church made up? And I don't think the cynicism's helped when you hear how it is that God's testified. And he's testified in three ways. We had three testimonies about the box. You know, someone looked in it, someone shook it, someone waited. But John says God has testified to this truth in three ways. By the water, by the blood, and by the spirit. Uh, okay, what, what does that even mean? And worse, John says if you don't believe that testimony, then you make God out to be a liar. That's a pretty full-on thing to do, isn't it? Make God out to be a liar. And it seems pretty unfair if we can't even figure out how he's given this testimony. It's all a bit confusing and weird. How, how could we possibly hear and believe? So I think we've got our work cut out for us this morning. But I hope that by the time we walk out of here, uh, we'll not only understand what John's saying, but we'll be really glad, really glad that God has given this testimony and we'll be absolutely convicted by it, even if now we're one of the cynical people. And then, in fact, we'll leave rejoicing because we've got this life. We know we can have this life that God's offering. 
And I want to start by working out exactly what God is testifying about, what he's testifying to, and then come back and work out how he's testified, all the blood and the water and stuff like that afterwards. So what is exactly God's testimony? What is he saying? Well, it's there in verse 11. He says, this is the testimony of God, that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. He who has the son has life. Who does not have the son does not have life. And I just want to notice three things about it. Notice, first of all, that this eternal life that he's talking about is something that God gives, right? It's a gift. It's not something we can earn. It's not something we can go and get. God's got to give it. Notice the second thing. He says this eternal life that he's giving is only given in his son, right? Who's that? Who's the son? Well, verse 5, who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the son of God. You know, we're not talking about anyone who's ever been called the son of God or anyone who's ever called themselves the son of God. I mean, you go down the mental hospitals and you're full of, find it's full of people calling themselves the son of God. Uh, or go to history, the emperors of Rome, that was their title, the son of God. Julius Caesar, son of God. Alexander the Great, in fact, came up with it first. He called himself the son of God, you know, the emperor of uh, Greece, who then conquered the known world, right? Went across to the border of India and said, there are no more lands to conquer, and so he went home. Called himself the son of God. And we're not talking about the demigods like Hercules. We're not talking about the crazy cult leaders like David Koresh, right? Who all call themselves the Messiah, the son of God. We're talking about Jesus. That's who God has declared is his son. And God's testimony is that eternal life is only found in Jesus. But notice the third thing, that God's testimony about eternal life in his son is not really about pie in the sky when you die. Because see there, notice it, whoever has the son has this life. Whoever does not have the son does not have life. It doesn't say will have eternal life. It's not talking about actually what happens when we die. It's not really a promise about the afterlife or what happens after this body fails and withers. It's something that you can have now. Whoever has Christ has eternal life already, already within ourselves. Now, of course, we're going to have it in eternity because, well, but that's only because we have it already now in this lifetime. And if you haven't got it in this lifetime, then you won't have it in eternity. And so eternal life, as John's talking about, is something you can have right now. But what does that even mean? How, how, how can you have eternal life now? What would that look like? Well, to understand what John means, uh, we've got to go back to his biography of Jesus, what, what's come to be known as John's Gospel, which is quite a way back in the Bible. And I've noticed over the last few weeks, there's a lot of people have been a bit confused about, okay, what, that John, but we're not reading John, but it is called One John, and what does all that mean? Well, it gets me confusing because there's actually four books with the title John, uh, and the guy John wrote five books, uh, four of which have his name. But anyway, three of them are letters to churches that the Apostle John, friend of Jesus, uh, wrote to churches in Europe, okay? And they're called One John, Two John, and Three John. Uh, one John's the first, and the other two are follow-ups. Uh, the other book that he wrote uh, that's not got his name is the book of Revelation. It's right at the end of the Bible. Uh, it's very strange. Uh, and if you've never got your head around it, 
well, you've got to be here for first term next year because we're going we're gonna to conquer it. Uh, but John's first book was his biography of Jesus, the Gospel of John. And lots of times in John's letters, uh, he picks up on stuff he's already discussed at length in his Gospel. Uh, and he does it not because uh, he's dastardly and mean. He does it because he's writing to the same people and he expects them to remember I mean, it's not, they haven't got the Bible as a book yet, but he's written one thing to them before, the Gospel of John, and there's the follow-up letter. So he expects them to remember. So it can be a bit confusing if we've never read the Gospel of John or if we haven't looked at it for a while or we just can't remember that kind of stuff. And that's exactly the case when it comes to this issue of eternal life. Because in John's Gospel, Jesus explains at length in multiple places what he's talking about. Now, he does it in a lot of places, but I just want to show you one place. It's in John chapter 17. Uh, if you want to find that in the church Bibles, it'd be actually good to, to look up and we'll be coming back to John's gospel and flicking back between 1 John and John for a bit. Um, it's page 1048 in the fat Bibles and it's 765 in the thin Bibles. You'll have to compare it to other people's to know if it's fat or thin, just like you compare yourself anyway. Uh, 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 John 17, the whole chapter is a prayer. Jesus prayed a prayer. It was, uh, it's, uh, from chapter 13 to 17 is the last night of Jesus with his friends. It's the last supper, the last meal he had. And he spent uh, 13, chapter 13 to 16 explaining stuff to them about now and about the future and what's about to happen the next day. And uh, he's about to leave and be arrested in chapter 18 um, and taken to trial, which is not going to go well. Uh, and there's this bit in the middle where he gets to the door of the place they've had dinner and he stops at the door and he prays with his friends. And it's one of the greatest prayers in the whole Bible. And I think it's even more special because... In this prayer, later on in the prayer, Jesus prays for you. You know that Jesus prayed for you? Um, you have to figure it out later. We're not going to look at it today. But see if you can figure out during the week or at morning tea and then come and tell me what Jesus prayed for you. There you go. Uh, there's a good challenge for later. But the bit I want to show you is in the very first paragraph. Pick it up at verse 1. John chapter 17 and verse 1. After Jesus had said this, he looked towards heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him, that's himself, authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you've given him. Yet Jesus is saying, you know, thanks, thanks that I get to give eternal life. It's a gift. Now this is eternal life. Yeah, he's, he's Jesus' definition. This is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. What is eternal life according to Jesus? It's a relationship with the Father that they may know you and they might know me. Uh, not in the sense of knowing about him, or about them, but in the sense of actually personally knowing them. Prince William and Kate, uh, we know them, right? 
they've been in the country recently. We might feel like we know them. We, uh, we watched their wedding, didn't we? Uh, we've, we've seen the photos of their children. Uh, but anyone actually get invited to go to, to the baby shower or the, or the wedding? Right? Just check I'm just, go. I'll be in awe if I did. Um, actually, it's the Matthews Windsor. The Queen has visited personally. Her photo's on the wall. Anyway. Uh, uh, but none of us actually know William and Kate personally, do we? Uh, and they certainly don't know us, right? Only as subjects, maybe. But uh, Jesus is talking about knowing in terms of relationship. And, and that's what eternal life is, according to Jesus. It's knowing God personally. That is, in, in the way Jesus talks about it, eternal life is more about a quality of life than a quantity of life. I mean, there's lots of it. It's going to go on forever. But, but it's of infinite quality. It's this relationship. It's a relationship with the giver of life. And, and so it's abundant life. It's true life. It's, it's real life. It's life how it's meant to be. Now, of course, it goes on uh, past this world into eternity, well, we'll know him face to face, but it's something you can have now. That's something that Jesus gives now. Earlier in the gospel, uh, Jesus says, when you trust him, you've actually crossed over from death to life. He says to the woman at the well in John 4 that he'll give you streams of living water. They're going to flow out of you. Uh, and uh, he says later on that he comes to give life and to give it to the full. See, previously you had a kind of life, but it was always ebbing away towards death. But now in Jesus Christ, you can have life that cannot be taken away from you, life to the full. And that's what John says in his letter is God's personal testimony. This is what God has given as his solemn vow before the court. This is what he promises on oath, that you can have that life, you can have it now, and you can have it always in his son. Life renewed and fulfilled in him and with him. Forgiven of your crimes. No longer his enemy, but his friend. Reconciled to him. Restored. Included. Loved. Transforming all your days. Today. Tomorrow. Next week. 20 years from now. And after this life is done. It's it's a pretty magnificent thing that God has personally testified to that he's given us eternal life in his son. But how can you know that really is God's testimony? How do we know that John and the early church weren't just, you know, to use the, uh, excuse my French, speaking out their bums, right? (laughs) Um, How do we know that that is what God himself has declared? It's all well and good for John to say, well, don't take my word for it, take God's. Uh, He's given his own testimony, but how does God do that? And the answer he gives seems a bit strange, or maybe very strange. Pick it up in verse 5. How does God give this testimony? Well, who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He didn't come by water only, but by water and blood. And it's the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the spirit, the water, and the blood. And the three are in agreement. Okay. Uh, Crystal clear? Uh, Stop now. 
Uh, I, I must say that that has bamboozled me for years. Uh, it's one of those passages you read it and then you start kind of whistling a little tune and glancing around to make sure you no one's looking as you flip the page and uh, but the, the trouble with just skipping it and not figuring out, well, there's actually two problems with it. One, God wants to be understood, right? He's given his Bible so we can understand. Now, that doesn't mean it's easy all the time, but sometimes we've got to wrestle with it. I and mean, I think you've got to be tenacious, right? If you come across things in the Bible you don't get, you've got to work at it. Be tenacious, Don't be satisfied with not understanding. Work at it. Ask the questions. Go and do the research. Try and figure it all out. Uh, Someone from 8 o'clock church messaged me this week to say that um, they've been reading Zechariah, which was their first reading, (laughs) luckily for them, Um, uh, and it was like doing a cryptic crossword. Um, and uh, they thought they'd made some progress and then went back to square one and then read Ezra and uh, Nehemiah at the same time and went, that's no better, and ah, what does this all mean, and, and had all these questions. I think that's someone who's tenacious, who wants to know, is working at it. But the trouble with this particular passage about just skipping it and not figuring it out is here is one of the most crucial claims of Christianity on which Christianity stands or falls. That God has given his personal testimony. Here's how you can know whether God is telling the truth or if he's a liar. That's worth figuring out, isn't it? Whether God's telling the truth or if he's a liar. So what's with the water and the blood and how did Jesus come by them and, and what's with the spirit testifying and how, how do all three testify to the same thing about, about Jesus and about eternal life? Well, maybe, you know, your mind jumps to Jesus' baptism. That, that sort of connects some of those things, right? Where, you know, Jesus uh, came up out of the water and the spirit descended on Jesus like a dove and voice came from heaven, this is my dear son, an announcement from God, with whom I'm well pleased. And that, that kind of links water and spirit at least. And there's certainly an announcement about Jesus, but actually in John's account of Jesus' baptism, the voice doesn't come from heaven. That's only in Matthew, Mark and Luke. So that's interesting. And it doesn't really make sense of the blood, especially since John says that Jesus came by the water and the blood together. I mean, he didn't bleed at his baptism unless, you know, he cut his foot on a rock or something. I mean, that's not mentioned. But and, and where was he coming to anyway? He was already here. I mean, how did he come by water and blood there? So I'm not sure that's it. Well, then... What about his birth? That's when he came, right? And, you know, childbirth's a pretty messy process. I've, I've been there for three of them and uh, I've tried very hard not to look. Um, but, you know, the waters break uh, and there's often a lot of blood. Um, but the Gospels never go into the gory details about Jesus' birth and, and, even, and John especially doesn't even talk about his birth. That's only in Matthew and Luke or the, the, the Christmas stories. And, and it's hard to know if it's his birth, how, how that could be God's explicit testimony that eternal life is found in his son. So, so that's not it. So, so what does John mean? Where does Jesus come by water and blood together? There's an answer. <laughs> that's, that's good, isn't it? 
But just like before, it takes familiarity with John's gospel to see it because he's referring back to things he's already written. Because there's one particular moment when water and blood flow together. It's only in John's gospel, in fact. It's not in Matthew, Mark and Luke. Uh, And it's because John was the only one of the apostles there to see it. Right? Lots of other people saw it because they were there, but none of the other apostles. The moment is, anyone know? His crucifixion. So come over to John chapter 19. It's page 1051 in the Fat Bibles. It's 768 in the Thin Ones. John chapter 19, where it all unfolds. And I'm going to pick it up at verse uh, 28. He's been sentenced to death. He's hanging on the cross. 28. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, and so they soaked a sponge in it, and they put the sponge on a stalk of a hyssop plant. They lifted it to Jesus' lips. And when he received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. He died. That was his last breath. Now, it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jewish leaders did not want... Uh, the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate, that's Pontius Pilate the governor, to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and they broke the legs of the first man who'd been crucified with Jesus. And then they broke those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. So instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. Okay, well, at least there's blood and water together. They're both flowing from Jesus' side at the same time. And whether that's because they pierced his stomach and uh, they got the clear stomach juices flowing along with all the rest of the gore, or or whether it was because um, the plasma separates from the red blood cells after death in the heart chambers, and maybe they got his heart. Uh, or there's a whole bunch of other suggestions, all of which show that he's dead. Uh, whichever way it was, it doesn't really matter. The guards already knew he was dead. They were just making sure. But what's significant is not so much that he was proven to be dead. John actually draws a different conclusion from it. <coughs> a stunning conclusion from the piercing and the flow. Pick it up in verse 34. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony. That's interesting. His testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth and he testifies so that you might believe. Okay, what is it that he wants us to believe? It's not believe that just that Jesus is dead, which he is. That's not hard to believe. The, the Romans knew he was dead. Now, these things happen so that the scripture would be fulfilled. None of his, not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. It's all about a testimony as John sees God bringing the scriptures written hundreds of years beforehand together and to fulfillment. Now, the first quote there is from Psalm 34 and verse 20, none of his bones will be broken which in turn is picked up in Psalm 22, which is the um, prediction of, the, of 
Christ on the cross and every part of the event. You know, they gather around, they gamble for his clothes and you know, I count on my bones and they're all there, they're not broken. Um, but it also picks up um, the idea of the Passover lamb in the Exodus story. Can you remember the Exodus when you know, they were coming out of Egypt, the final plague was that all the firstborn sons would die uh, in your house unless you killed a lamb and ate it and painted its blood on the doorpost of your house. There you go, that's a pretty fun thing to do for renovation. So, um, uh, and, but if they did that, the angel of death would pass over the house and your children would be saved. But there was one condition placed on the slaughtering and eating of each of the, the lambs in each of the houses. There was one thing that you were not allowed to do to the lamb. In the slaughtering of it, And of the eating of it, you are not allowed to break any bones. It's really interesting because that doesn't happen. It doesn't say anything about bones breaking in any of the other sacrifices of Israel. You had to leave the bones intact. And when Jesus died, he died as the Passover lamb. But it's the second quote I want to focus on. You might want to come back at that one later. But the second quote I want to focus on, they will look on the one they've pierced. Now, that's a quote from one of the prophets, a guy called Zechariah. We read it earlier in Zechariah chapter 12. Uh, Zechariah was having a vision of of the destruction of the enemies of God. You know, armies are destroyed, people are cut down, many are burned to death. (laughs) It's pretty, it's uh, pretty graphic stuff. It's a prophecy of doom and disaster as the wrath of God is poured out on the nations. But all through the chapter, about five or six times, it keeps saying, on that day, on that day, on that day, on that day. It's all of the same day, all this stuff happens. And there's a sudden twist, a bizarre twist, uh, in verse 10 of Zechariah 12. In the Fat Bibles, it's 9.25, the thin ones, it's 6.74. You might want to look this up. This bizarre twist happens. All this destruction is reigning as God's wrath is poured out. But on the same day... Verse 10, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. This is where God's spirit of grace is poured out. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. See, the day of wrath and destruction also turns out to be the day that God's love is poured out. His spirit of grace comes. But notice it doesn't come without a death. Somebody is stabbed. Somebody is pierced. Who does Zechariah say is pierced? They will look on me. The one they have pierced. Who's the me? Well, maybe it's Zechariah, but it's not him because he's quoting someone else. In fact, at the start of the chapter, this is the word of the Lord. He's quoting God. God says that he is the one who's going to be pierced. God's the me. They will look on me, God, the one they have pierced. But here's the really cool bit. You come down a few sentences and see what else happens that very same day. On that day, chapter 13 and verse 1. On that day, a fountain will be opened to the house of David 
and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and from impurity. This fountain is going to open up, this, this fountain that will wash people. The day of God's grace being poured out, the same day as his wrath is coming, the day that God is pierced is the day this fountain bursts forth with incredible cleansing, but it cleanses from two different things. It cleanses from sin and it cleanses from impurity. Does anyone happen to know from the Old Testament law, you know, the book of Leviticus and so on, what what is needed for sin to be cleansed? Blood. Blood has to be spilt. A perfect, spotless, unblemished animal has to die in your place and it has to die a particular way. It has to have its throat slit by the priest as he puts his hand on the head of it. He has to catch all the blood and he has to throw the blood around the room and over the altar. Blood has to go everywhere. And the sacrifices in Jerusalem, the animal sacrifices, they could have thousands of these in a day and apparently the temple stank of death. And blood flowed out of the temple down little rivulets into the valley of Kidron. It stank of death as blood was poured out. Blood that never paid for one sin because the blood of goats and wolves could never pay for sins. But how do you get your sins cleansed? You have to have blood spilt. What about impurity or ceremonial uncleanness? How did that get removed in the law? It's not blood. (laughs) Uh, You don't have to sacrifice something else. You have to get the priest to wash you with water. On the day of God's grace and supplication, which is the same day that his wrath poured out, a fountain is going to open in Jerusalem and the very things that are needed to cleanse from sin and from impurity are going to gush out together. Blood and water. The very day that God himself is pierced. And that Passover day nearly 2,000 years ago as Jesus was put to death on the cross, his side was pierced and out flowed the water mixed with the blood as God's declaration, as the fulfilment of scripture, bringing cleansing and healing, bringing mercy and forgiveness as he endured the very wrath of God that was bound for sinful man, a fountain that brought cleansing from sin and impurity, a fountain that that brought us peace with our Heavenly Father as his wrath was diverted away from us and and as his love flowed to us, a fountain that that flowed bringing, bringing a new relationship with God, with our Maker, that we might know him. A relationship which Jesus declares is what eternal life consists of. This is eternal life, that they might know you and they might know me, your son. And the Spirit Spirit testifies the same thing. Not Well, he testifies it through the event, but he testifies it has. And we research the truth. It's not like the Book of Mormon where you have to pray with faith that God reveal this and you'll have a good feeling that the Book of Mormon is true. No, you can do the research. You can see the history. You can see the prophecy all coming together. But but the Spirit does confirm it in our hearts. But that's the testimony of the blood and water together. And it's the testimony of the Spirit as he works in us. And it's also how he came. How did Jesus come by water and blood? Where did he come? Well, he came 
to his throne. The cross was his coronation. The cross was where he crushed our great enemy, Satan, as he paid for us with his death. Now, Colossians 2 talks about Jesus on the cross making a public spectacle of the powers and authorities as he cancelled the written code that was against us and as he triumphed. Right, The cross is his triumph, it's not his failure. And then he defeated even death itself not three days later. The one who truly trusts in him truly has crossed over from death to life. This is God's testimony. The testimony written in Jesus' blood. But you have to believe his testimony. And John says if you don't believe his testimony, you actually make God out to be a liar. And you don't have life. Whoever says the Son has life, who does, does not have the Son does not have life. I mean, how could you have life without Jesus when he's the one who's died for you and he's the one who can give it to you? But let me come back to Brian. What happened to Brian? He walked into church that day, oxygen bottle under his arm, breathing tubes up his nose, six months left to live, knowing he's not at peace with God. What happened? Well, later that week I visited him and he agreed that uh, he had enough energy to meet up once a week and, and read the Bible together and to, to figure out if it was possible to, to know peace with God or not, to work out what happens afterwards. And over the next few weeks he came to discover not only was it entirely possible, he came to discover that he could be forgiven And he could know where he's going. But not only that, he discovered actually with great sadness that he'd actually wasted his life. He'd wasted his whole life not knowing God. And and he was filled with great regret about about a wasted life. And it is a wasted life. I mean, it's wasted afterwards because you're not with God. But it's wasted now. Because you don't have life to the full that God, Jesus gives. And he died almost six months to the day later, full of joy and hope and life. Because God had given them to him in his son Jesus. He believed God's testimony and he reaped the rewards. In fact, he died surrounded by a group of men from church who all had the same life. Who all believed the same thing. It was really, really lovely. And he reaped the rewards. Don't wait that long. Don't wait till you're dying to figure out if it's true. Because there's life to be had. Life now, eternal life, which isn't just pie in the sky when you die. There is pie then. It's a great pie. It's like a key lime pie, but better. You know, it's apple pie. <laughs> but you can have this life now. Abundant. Flowing. Welling up inside you. Do you believe God's testimony? Do you know his son, Jesus? For he who has the son has life. He who does not have the son does not have life. We're going to sing about this water and blood which flowed. Rock of Ages.